there is a uh, nurse, an author, her name is Bronnie Ware. Uh, she worked for a number of years in what's called palliative care. If you're not familiar with that term, it's probably because you're younger. Uh, but basically, she's the kind of nurse that spends the last 12 weeks of a person's life with them when a terminally ill patient has to go home. Their treatments are all done. They're just going home to die. And uh, during her time, there's often many conversations with people about what would you do differently with your life? What do you regret about the things you've done? How would you live differently? And so she compiled all this information that she did over a number of years of palliative care to discover what are the five most common regrets of those who are dying. Number one was, I wish that I had the courage to live true to myself and not other people's expectations. And this one turned out to be the most common regret that people who were dying experienced. Because when, they would, when your life is almost over, as you look back, they would find there were several unfulfilled hopes and dreams that they never took a chance on, they never took a risk on, because they were too wound up pleasing other people. Number two, I wish that I hadn't worked so hard. And it's fascinating because every single male patient particularly expressed this particular regret, saying things like, I wish that I hadn't missed so much of my kids' youth. They're growing up because I was working so much. I wish that I had spent more time with and appreciating the companionship of my spouse. Number three, I wish that I had the courage to express my feelings. For many people, they would suppress those feelings in order to keep the peace with people in their home, people at work. And what they found out was doing this over a number of years, doing this for your whole lifetime, that it was a very mediocre experience, a mediocre existence, because it turns out people don't really know me. I've never let people see what I really feel or think. And in fact, people who did this tended to develop illnesses related to bitterness and resentments in life. Number four, I wish that I'd stayed in touch with friends. That there's something that happens as you get older in life, that as your energy decreases, as your responsibilities increases, but that there were so many regrets from people. You know what? The truth is I was just too busy or too lazy to maintain my friendships. And number five, most common regret of those who are dying, I wish that I let myself be happier. Now, for many people, they didn't realize until the end of their lives that happiness was a choice and that they had a tendency to be stuck in old patterns and old habits. And this morning, I want to add one more dimension, perhaps the most important dimension for us to be thinking about. When the writing is on the wall of your life, will you, your greatest regret be about how you related to God, particularly as you prepare to face Him? So if you have a Bible, you'll want to turn in it to Daniel chapter 5. We're in this series, Between Two Worlds, How to Live for Jesus While Living in Babylon. And we're discovering what uncompromising faith in God and faithfulness in the world look like. And the background, if you're new to here this morning, is that God's people, they turned away from him to idolatry and immorality, 
and they receive warning after warning from the Lord, who said, if that is what you want, then that's what you're going to get. And so in the end, he allowed the Babylonian Empire to conquer them, taking their sons and people like Daniel into service of a pagan king and a pagan culture, where they were surrounded by idolatry and immorality. And having to face questions of life, um, am I going to be shaped by life in Babylon or by God? And as they're confronted by various compromises, we see particularly with Daniel that he trusts God, he's faithful to God, and receives immense favor throughout the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. But here we are in chapter 5, 40 years have passed, there's a new king sitting on the throne, and he is so full of hubris, even in the face of imminent doom, and not just from the Persian army that is knocking at the door of the gates of Babylon, but from a God in heaven who has ominously written something on the wall. And what this king does is he turns to alternative saviors and idols and wine and advisors, anything to give him some help or hope, the same way that you and I maybe tend to seek anyone and anything apart from God or in place of God when we're facing difficulties or the end. Now, the queen mother recommends to Belshazzar, the king, that you go seek Daniel, the, the, the hero of our book, who is this godly man, he's gifted with wisdom, but the king has this hardness of heart that consumes him with self-interest and pride. And so now the writing is on the wall for the king and kingdom of Babylon. And the question for him is, if you knew the end was coming, how are you going to respond to that? And the question for us is, how would you? Because that speaks volumes about what we really believe, what we really think is important in life. So we're picking up in the middle of the passage, in the chapter, chapter 5, verse 13. Then, bless you, Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, you're that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I've heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I've heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom." So we find Daniel, many of you remember at the beginning of chapter 1, he was a teenager, probably 14, 15 years old, and now we're, here we are in chapter 5, he's now old, he is retired, he's probably in, he's definitely now in his 80s. And on the surface, it seems like this king, he's actually come seeking help from this former chief wise man and from his God, because he's heard that, that this man who worships the God of Israel has great power. So it looks like he's seeking this godly man and his God, but his words actually betray him. In verse 13, instead of celebrating Daniel's arrivals, he starts with humiliating him. In other words, no matter how much you've achieved, no matter how much favor you've had this past 70 years, you're still just one of the exiles, those Jewish exiles that were brought in chains from Judah, conquered by my forefather, King Nebuchadnezzar who, if I remember, ransacked your God's temple in chapter 1 and took these fine gold and silver worship cups that I'm sipping my gin and juice on this, this evening in honor of my gods. 
So this isn't a celebration. This isn't a welcome of the wisdom of Daniel and his God. But he does say in 14 and verse 15, regurgitates what his mom said in the previous passage. But I have heard that you do have some spiritual power to interpret dreams and solve problems. And so if you help a brother out, I'll make it worth your while. I'll pay you for it. I'll pay you with royal purple robes, and I'll, I'll put a presidential medal of honor of gold around your neck, and I'll promote you to the third highest position in the kingdom after me and, of course, my dad, the retired king, Nabonidus. Question for you. Is he turning to the Lord of heaven and earth, humbling himself in desperation, honoring God in exaltation? No. No, instead what's happening here, he's saying to Daniel, Remember, you are a conquered servant. Your God is a conquered God. We ransacked his temple, drinking alcohol from it right now at my party. And I'm calling upon both of you as subservient to serve Babylon. I've exhausted all my other options from earlier in the chapter. All my idols, all my indulgences, all my advisors have failed me. So I'm going to turn to you as my last resort because I've heard you might be useful. You and your God and I'll pay you for it. This is the arrogance of the king of Babylon. And this is the dangerous habit that you and I can also fall into as well. Because the first point in, the, in this passage this morning is that pride has a tendency to treat the Lord as a tool to employ instead of a God to exalt. Because we see with this king that God is not really a part of his life, that he's not, uh, he just sees God as one of many of these other options that I have, and I have many other saviors and escapes and experts to guide me or to comfort me, and I'll turn to your God last because nothing else worked. I'm just a king sitting on a little throne in a little kingdom, and I'm going to call upon the God who sits on a heavenly throne over an eternal kingdom when it's convenient, when it's a crisis. And the question I think about is, is that you? Is that me sometimes with God? That when the writing is on the wall in a situation in our lives, when God is trying to get our attention like he is with Belshazzar, when you reach an ending that's not of your choosing, do you ever try to use God or bribe God or bargain with God for the blessing instead of worshiping him as the blesser? In other words, do we look at God, this one worthy of worship, and see him as first priority or as the last resort? when we need help. Pride. So how does Daniel respond? Look at verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness, and glory, and majesty, and because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened, so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. <coughs> Excuse me. 
He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven. Until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will, and you his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Verse 17, Daniel says, okay, I'll tell you the truth from God, but keep your reward or give it away, I don't care. The power and presence of God are not for sale. And it's weird, right? He starts with a history lesson. Instead of addressing the issue right away, he goes back into history over the last 40, 50 years of history with uh, the, the kingdom of Babylon in verse 18 and 19. You remember this former king? He's five kings ago now. So this is five kings that have passed since Nebuchadnezzar. You remember him? He was considered the greatest king in the world. He had immense power over people from every nation, every station in life but only because it was given to him. This glory and authority from the most high God of heaven. And in verse 20 and 21, it turns out though with Nebuchadnezzar, pride had hardened his heart. He started to believe his own hype. I accomplished all this greatness on my own. The city of Babylon and all its greatness, all the territories we have conquered, all the peoples that we bring in and import all the, them as servants into our culture. I did all this. And so in his pride, his heart got hardened in verse 20 and 21, and he ignored God's warnings to cut it out for an entire year. Which look back on the previous chapter, verse, chapter 4, verse 29, Daniel had been warning King Nebuchadnezzar for an entire year, it says. And King Nebuchadnezzar just said, I don't, I don't want to hear about your God. This is all me. And so what happens is that God knocks him down from his high horse with a psychotic break. He has a moment of temporary insanity, but not so temporary. Okay, this is what's going to happen to you, King Nebuchadnezzar. You're going to think you're a cow. You're going to live outdoors like a cow, even when it rains, even when it's cold and wet outside. You're going to eat grass like a cow, and you're going to do it for seven years. Nice. <laughs> and the result, and this is the key to the passage that I want you to be thinking about, for this is, this is what encapsulates everything we're talking about this morning. The result is that Nebuchadnezzar repents. He turns from his arrogance, he develops a profound humility before the God of heaven and earth who rules and reigns over every king, over every kingdom of mankind. From pride, going before a fall, to humility before God. Now here's the chilling indictment. You look at verse 22, but your problem, King Belshazzar, you knew all this, but you would not humble your heart. In other words, for those of you who know, he is most likely Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. So he was alive during those, the, the, all this, these events that are happening. You were a firsthand eyewitness of Nebuchadnezzar's glory, his fall, his humility. 
And yet you refuse to humble yourself before Almighty God. Because arrogance assumes that I could do whatever I want and nothing's ever going to happen to me. And so, Belshazzar, you are without excuse. <clears throat> and he charges him with two crimes. Verse 23, number one, you proudly exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. You have not given the God of heaven glory. You haven't given him credit for all the power and success that you have, like King Nebuchadnezzar did. You have not lived in response to God in repentance of sin. Instead, you worshiped idols that you thought you could control and do your bidding like a genie in a bottle, and you lived to please yourself instead of serving and worshiping the one true God. You didn't worship God. You exalted yourself against him. So, number one, he would not worship the God of heaven. But number two, you also desecrated the worship of God by, get this, taking the vessels, those cups that were set apart for God's purposes from God's temple, and then using it for your own. Let me say that again in more clear terms. Taking things that God has set apart for his purposes and then taking them for your own use and purposes. These temple vessels, you remember in chapter 1, were holy to God, therefore the worship of God. And what Belshazzar did was he passed them out like party favors to his guests and his wives and his concubines for uh, this drunken orgy that he was having at the beginning of the chapter. And to do what? Daniel says to honor your blind, deaf, dumb idols instead of the God who holds your breath and your throne and your life in his hands. And so we see here the second problem with pride. That what pride does is, like Belshazzar, it's unrepentant about exalting ourselves and our agenda and our purposes above God's. You see, the king of heaven is beckoning to him, to us, trust me, follow me. And like Belshazzar, we double down and kind of growl, no, I haven't done anything wrong. And I'm going to put my will, my wants, my ways as better than yours instead of going your way. And so what's happening here is Daniel is giving us a glimpse of the nature of all sin, that it falls into these two categories. Number one, that we fail to worship and serve God above all things. The Apostle Paul wrote and writes in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that he declares that Jesus is both Savior and Lord. And it turns out for us, if we're honest with ourselves, everyone wants a Savior, but not everybody wants Him to be Lord over our lives. Because I have my own plans, my own preferences, my own priorities. I don't want to do things your ways. And so I ask myself, does Jesus come first above all the treasures and pleasures and priorities of this world? Because that's what worship looks like. Secondly, the second part of kind of what na the nature of sin consists of is that sin takes what God has set apart for his purposes and then uses it for its own. And we are all guilty of that in some form or fashion, and the writing is on the wall for us. Because the Apostle Paul also writes in Romans chapter 12 that we are to offer our bodies, ourselves, our lives as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God as our spiritual act of worship. In other words, it means that everything that I have in this life, my physical body, my resources, all these things that I think belong to me, actually belong to God and are set apart for God to his glory. 
And so that changes how I look at my life. So let me give you some examples. We talk about this even from basic membership in our, our church, that God has given each of us our time, talents, and treasures. And so the purpose isn't just to glorify and satisfy myself, but how do I use these things for the glory of God and the good of others? And so some of us come and we have that mentality, well, I will give of my time, I'll give Jesus Sunday mornings and maybe one night a week for attending a growth group, and, but the rest of the time is mine to do with as I please. And some of it's out of responsibility, right? I need to go to school. I need to go to, go to, go to work. I can't just sit at church and read, read the Bible and pray all day. But that's not what God is talking about, right? Does it all belong to Jesus? Does your work, does your time, does your play, does it all honor Jesus? So well, with our time. Secondly, with our talents, when we think about like, well, uh, God has given me all these things that I can do that are different, like we talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that we all have diff- we're all different parts of the body of Christ, and God has given us different things to contribute, different abilities and, and uh, talents to be able to, to serve Him. But instead of serving God, instead of serving at church, we'll only use our God-given abilities to get ahead, to get applause, to get paid. And God would say that you are robbing me by hoarding what you have for yourself and your own glory rather than his purposes. Okay, let's talk about our treasures with our resources, with our money. God, I am a good follower of Jesus. I'm a good churchgoer and I give 10% of my paycheck to you every month. If there's any left over after my bills and the thrills of all my pleasures and, and treasures that I like to invest in. And so God gets our leftovers instead of the first fruits that God commanded his people to bring to him. Now, is it wrong to be responsible, to handle your responsibilities in life? Is it wrong to enjoy life? Of course not. But the picture here is your family and your finances, your education, your work, your play, all of it belongs to God, should be set apart for God. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, it says that whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. To take what has been set apart for him and his purposes and his glory and do that for him rather than for our own purposes and glory. And so the question that we need to be asking ourselves is, am I asking God, what does he want to do with my resources, with my time, talent, and treasure? Or even jumping back to Romans chapter 12, what does he want me to do with my body? Because some of us, we forget that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so we misuse that. We, We take, instead of being set apart for God, we Give it to, over to things like addiction or sexual immorality or pornography. How am I misusing any of the things God has given me that's set apart for him in opposition to his purposes and glory? And if I'm doing that, how do I need to repent? So question, what's the fallout? What's happening here? We've, we've been talking about this, this story for a couple weeks now. What's the actual message and the meaning of that message? on the wall. Look at verse 24. Then, from his presence, this is Daniel still talking, the hand was sent. Remember, the supernatural hand appeared, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom. And brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, which is the 
singular form of parson. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Holy moly. So Daniel continues on with his speech to the king in verses 24 and 25. In response to your arrogance and unrepentance, God's supernatural hand has appeared in a physical form before you, etching this writing on the wall. It is four Aramaic words. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. That's why you don't read it, because you're, you don't care about our Jewish culture. You don't care about our language. And so what does it mean, Daniel? He explains, verse 26, mene means numbered. That the days of the king and the kingdom of Babylon are numbered. Not just that the end is near, but that it is here, today. And Belshazzar, I don't know if you see it this way, but he's receiving a very rare gift. He gets to know in advance, he's told the exact day that he's going to die. Now, you and I, we may not know the specifics of our future, but your death and mine are just as certain as his. The mortality rate of the human race hovers around 100%. And so the author of the letter to the Hebrews in chapter 9, verse 27, says it is appointed for every single man to die once and afterward judgment. <coughs> verse 27, tekel means weighed. That on the scales of God's holiness, his justice, and his righteousness, we are found deficient. But wait a minute, Pastor Josh, I'm not blasphemous like King Belshazzar. I'm not an, a serial killer, axe murderer. I'm not this corrupt, lying, you know, politician or businessman that takes advantage of other people. I'm a pretty good person. Paul writes in the letter to the Romans chapter 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned aside, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. One of our problems in this life is that everyone thinks that they're above average, morally speaking. So we think like, oh, there are some people who wear the black hats, like they're the bad guys in those cowboy movies. They wear the black hats, and they're on this side, and they're obvious. They do drugs, they do this, they do that. They're, they steal, kill, and destroy. But I wear a white hat because I'm a pretty good person. And Jesus comes and said, you've got the wrong picture. It's not that some of you wear black hats, some of you wear white hats. You all wear black hats, you all sin, and there's only one person who wears a white hat of cleanliness and holiness. His name is Jesus. So if we were honest with ourselves today, if God said, let's weigh your life on the divine scales of judgment today, have you loved and served God above all other things? Because that's the kind of worship we were created for. Are you using your God-given time and talents and resources for His glory and His purposes or your own? If your answer is not an emphatic, unqualified yes, then the judgment of the last word is for you too. Verse 28, parson, perez in the singular, means divided. It means cut in half. And so he's saying to him, your kingdom, your life are cut in half, are cut 
short, are cut down, are being taken from you. And now, look at this. How does Belshazzar respond? This is fascinating. In verse 29, the king thanks Daniel. I'm going to send you out the door with your pay and the position that I promised you. And that's it. In other words, he believes Daniel enough to reward him, right? If he thought Daniel was lying, what would he do? Off of this guy's head. He's just trying to embarrass me in front of everyone. Kill this guy. But what happens here is he believes Daniel enough to reward, but he doesn't believe him enough to repent. And I wonder if you're in the same boat, that you know God's will and God's word, that you need to stop worshiping at the altar of your selfishness or your sexual immorality or your addictions or your anger. You believe the warnings from God, but not enough to humble yourself in repentance by turning away from sin towards God by trusting in Jesus, letting him rescue you out of your sin. History tells us that the Medo-Persian Empire, their army, this combination of the Medes and the Persians, had already encircled the city of Babylon and actually infiltrated the impenetrable walls and defenses, the Great Wall of Babylon. They didn't break through it. They didn't have to fight through it. They simply, like short history lesson, they diverted the river, the Euphrates River that, that runs through the city until it started to dry up, and their army simply walked under, under the moat into the city. So the great wall of Babylon failed, but not because of human ingenuity, but because of a sovereign God in heaven who can conquer kings and kingdoms at his whim. And so what happens here in verse 30 and 31, that very same night, it says, and we know this is true, is around October 13th, 539 BC, the king was killed the capital is taken. Darius the Mede is made a governor by the conquering Persian emperor, King Cyrus. And thus ends the king and kingdom of Babylon, judged by a sovereign God. You see, Belshazzar's kingdom, his life, were all taken from him. And so we need to ask ourselves, what is Scripture's verdict about us? That we also may have it all, but we will lose it all. Because Romans chapter 6 says that, yes, we are all sinners, and the wages of sin is what? Death. And not just separation from our physical life, but separation from the source of life, God himself, for eternity. And so the big idea of this whole passage this morning is that, like Belshazzar, the pride of our unrepented sin is weighed by a just and sovereign God and found wanting. We all fall short of his glory, his goodness, his righteousness. And you and I, we may not see a supernatural hand appear etching his judgment, but the writing is on the wall for all of us today. Romans chapter 2 verse 15 tells us, even if you didn't grow up in God, with God's people in a church, didn't grow up reading God's word, the same hand of God has also engraved the law, the standards of God on our hearts. That like Belshazzar, we are without excuse. So do you know that our days are numbered, they are weighed by God, and that they're found deficient? The writing is on the wall for our sin. 
Now, here's the good news. This is the core of Jesus' message in response to this, that you can never be good enough to get to heaven. You can never be righteous enough to tip the scales in our favor. So what Jesus does, his message is, I've come and offered to take our place in divine judgment. I don't come demanding that you try harder or you be better. I came to take your place because you couldn't do it. And so Jesus lived the sinless life we were supposed to live. He suffered the death that we should have paid and then to give us the gift that we cannot earn. And so when we receive him, we receive his righteousness, the righteousness of Christ on your side of God's scale. And on the other side, he takes out, he takes away, he takes upon himself our sin, our condemnation. So there is nothing left. That means that in Christ, on the scales of God's justice, you are no longer deficient because you're weighed with the eternal righteousness of Christ. And some of you need to come before the Lord and maybe have never made that initial repentance of, I need you to be the, the one who forgives and cleanses me of sin, who puts your righteousness on my balance and takes my sinfulness on your balance. Others, perhaps you have humbly repented of your sin. You're actively worshiping your Savior, but you're discouraged because the writing is on the wall of your life. You've come to the end of your rope or your resources, or your relationship, or the end of your very life itself. And the good news is that Daniel didn't write this book for Belshazzar. He wrote this book for God's people who were discouraged in Babylon. That everywhere they looked, it seemed like there were people getting away with all kinds of blasphemy and cruelty and sinning with impunity. And so there were many faithful Jewish followers of God, like Daniel, who were lived their entire life under captivity and adversity, wondering, is God still in charge? It's been 70 years. Has he forgotten us? It's been 70 years. Will he help us? And this chapter answers that question with a resounding yes. And that's good news for us because that points forward to the gospel to remind us that the days of wickedness are numbered, that the true king is returning that he will restore his justice. He will take away our suffering and take us home to a promised land like the Jewish people are about to experience, to spend eternity with him. And our hope is in that day, in that king, and that hope gives us strength when it seems like the writing is on the wall for those who humbly love and serve and worship Jesus. But you're experiencing the pain, the adversity, the difficulty of the writing on the wall of your life today. Let me close with this. <clears throat> uh, Lieutenant Colonel Brian Birdwell was walking through the hallways of the Pentagon, 9.35 a.m., September 11, 2001, when terrorists crashed American Airlines Flight 77 into that building. The hallway was immediately enveloped in flames as this 80-ton aircraft struck at 520 miles per hour. In fact, the nose cone of the plane landed less than 20 yards from where he was standing. His pants melted into his skin. He was caked with blood and soot. It would turn out later that 60% of his body was covered in severe burns. Now, the force of the impact knocked him off of his feet, and he 
temporarily lost consciousness. When he awoke, he was surrounded by fire, completely disoriented. He didn't know which direction was which. He knew that he was facing a grisly death, that he needed to move, but he had no idea which direction to run. And the wrong choice might send him deeper into the flames, but he had to make a choice. And so he ducks his head, and this man, he ran screaming at the top of his lungs, Jesus, I'm coming to see you. Whichever direction I'm running, I'm coming to see you. And I want to tell you this, whether he was headed towards life or death, he still knew that he was heading in the right direction. Now, by the grace of God, it turned out it was the right direction for more life here still on earth. But for you and I, you don't have to wonder what direction you need to run. That in God's mercy, the Lord has shown us the consequences of sin, the mercy of his son, so we run towards him. And he's spoken clearly in this passage about the reality of judgment and that the reason he does that is God is showing us the consequences so that we don't have to experience them. That judgment need not be our destiny. That whatever sin there is in your life, there is a direction to run. Run towards your Savior. He'll receive you. He'll hold you. He'll help you. He loves you enough to point out the consequences of sin and pride and to say mene, tekel, parsim, to express with all the love in his heart, don't go that way. Come to me. That if I love you enough to warn you, you know I love you enough to receive you. Come to me. Turn from your sin and pride. Run to him. And to close the loop, don't come to the end of your life with regrets. Stepping into glory face to face with Jesus and having the greatest regret of your life to be, I didn't live for you, Jesus. I only live for myself, my priorities, my plans, my people, my pleasures, my pride. Instead, I want you to be able to say, I saw the writing on the wall. I put down my pride. I repented of sin. I invited Jesus onto the throne of my life. I glorified you. I didn't always get it right, but regularly I chose that you would be first. May you encounter the living God. Some of you have heard me say this before. There are many moral people sitting in pews on a Sunday morning who think they're pretty good who don't think they really need a Savior compared to other people. And very few who experience the despair of their sin and the breathless wonder of grace in Christ. That is my hope and prayer for you today. Let's pray. God, our Father, we come before you, humbled by your word, me most of all, recognizing that I am incredibly proud and arrogant, thinking that I have less sin to, to give less sin to repent of than anyone else when I probably have more. And so this morning we ask as we transition into a time of worshiping you through the communion table that this would be a time of reflection for us. That we would acknowledge our, our pride in not turning to you, in not worshiping you, in not acknowledging our sin, in usurping what has been set apart for you in our lives for our own glory, our own purposes. And so we love you and praise you in the name of Jesus.